want Philly Philly? Yeah, let's do it. Swing of the mess, suck him out. The Philadelphia Phillies are 2008 World Champions of Baseball. Episode 5 of the Philly Sports Complex. You know what? I'm just going to get right into it. The Sixers are in the second round. Uh, it's not really looking good right now. The Phillies were riding a hot streak and then returned to the 2020 and then returned to their 2023 selves and are actually in the worst stretch of the season on a five-game five losing streak at the time of this recording. But the team that's the true talk of the town, I feel like, is our Philadelphia Bulldogs. I'm, shit, I mean our Philadelphia Eagles. The genius, magician, and God that is one Howie Roseman has once again come out of this draft with the Eagles being the talk of the league. I'm actually in utter disbelief that the, that the league keeps letting Howie get away with all of his maneuvers. In my opinion, he's head over heels better than the majority of teams and their general managers. I mean, truly, what team dominates a draft, uh, makes headline in trades, and doesn't seem to really give up much collateral when it comes to either moving up in the draft or acquiring season slash franchise altering players. An example, AJ, the trade for A.J. Brown last year, and then in this year, bringing in DeAndre Swift. And trust me, we'll be d- diving into the DeAndre Swift trade in a little while. Um, but damn it, I'm just I'm stoked for that, and I went crazy when it happened. Two years in a row, we get to experience a huge trade that takes our offense to another level. The Eagles went into this draft with a few question marks, whether you look at running back, defensive line depth, uh, cornerback depth, safeties, and you could even throw in a couple more minute question marks as well. But as we left the draft on Saturday evening, I was 10 times as confident in this team than I was heading into the draft. Now, don't get me wrong. I was still expecting this team to win the division and at least one playoff game. But I know it's extremely difficult to make it back to the Super Bowl, especially when you seemingly have more question marks surrounding the team than the previous year. But now, I mean, there's not a doubt in my mind that this team stands out amongst the NFC, let alone the entire league. I'm 100% expecting an NFC Championship appearance yet again, and probably sitting around 75%, 85% confidence at expecting a Super Bowl appearance as well. I mean, I mean, how can't you? As of right now on paper, I feel like this team got better. Now, in the last podcast, I went over the draft a little bit and explained that I was leading to the side of drafting Bijan Robinson. I mean, it, it took me a while to get to that point, but by the time draft rolled around, I was pretty set on using that 10th pick or even possibly trading back a little bit into the teams and snagging Bijan as well. Another route, another route I was also on board for was hopefully getting Jalen Carter with that 10th pick and possibly picking up Jameer Gibbs towards the end of the first round as well. But long behold, Bijan was drafted by the Atlanta Falcons at pick 8 overall, and Jameer Gibbs would, end, would surprisingly get drafted by the Lions in the early teens as well. But this draft unfolded exactly the way Harry Roseman and the team wanted it to, or better yet, it unfolded exactly the way how he thought it would. He never panicked. He never made a choice that didn't make sense to the team. He waited until pick 9, the Chicago Bears draft pick, traded up from 10, only costing an extra 4th round pick in next year's draft, by the way, to ensure no other teams were possibly trying to move up, and they selected the most talented athlete in the entire draft, and now former Georgia defensive tackle Jalen Carter. Now, I don't want to go too much over his off-the-field issues. Yes, 
Everyone knows it by now. He was involved in a tragic set of events that took the lives of two individuals. I'm not understating that fact at all. It is, it's, it's devastating. They were racing through the streets of Athens, Georgia. Jalen Carter drove one of their vehicles, and the other vehicle was driven by a Georgia staff member and included Jalen's teammate as well. Jalen was not under the influence of alcohol or drugs, nor was he involved in the actual accident. The driver of the other vehicle was two times over the legal sobriety limit, driving way faster and obviously way more reckless as well. It was determined by law enforcement that Jalen Carter's actions on the night of the accident did not cause the fatal crash. He didn't flee the scene, and he spoke to the police that arrived until he was clear to go. In no way am I saying Jalen just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. He made a terrible mistake that led to an outcome that he will hold on to for the rest of his life. Without this incident, Jalen Carter was bound to be selected in the first three, three picks, with a chance of him even being the number one overall pick, depending on who was going to be at that slot. And no chance in hell would he have slid past five. But it happened, and there's no one doing that, and in turn, Jalen Carter slid all the way to pick nine. And according to most scouts and analysts, the Eagles got the opportunity to select maybe the overall best prospect in this draft. Now flash forward to the 30th overall pick in the draft, the Eagles had a plethora of options to choose from. There were tons of talent available. You had safety Brian Branch, Penn State's Joey Porter, but one name stood out to them. A name that some mock drafts had the Eagles potentially taken at 10th overall. But once again, Howie patiently sat back and he waited. Another Georgia defensive player and edge rusher Nolan Smith was chosen by the Eagles. Nolan Smith is an athletic freak. He posted a 4-3-9 40-yard dash, which, has just, which just has me dreaming of what he can do coming around that edge. He did miss the final six games of the year with a pectoral injury, but there's no signs of that affecting him heading into training camp and this season. Now, one of the comparisons for Nolan Smith has actually been Hassan Reddick. Hassan Reddick, according to NFL.com, stands at 6'1", weighing in at 240 pounds. Nolan Smith at the Combine weighed in at 238 pounds and standing 6 foot 2 inches tall. Now, I mentioned the height and weight there because some say a reason for Nolan falling in this draft is teams had questions or doubts to his size. Now, I looked up what an average defensive end weighs in at, and I found a weight of 277 pounds and also an average height of over 6 foot 4. This is something we hear every single year. Several players, the stigma gets attached to, and truly this tracks across all four major sports as well. Highly touted prospects with potentially elite athletic traits fall due to them lacking in size and teams having questions about that. But they will always fall, they'll get scooped up by a team, and usually they turn into a solid piece and sometimes a cornerstone for that team as well. Hassan Reddick throughout his career also heard of those size issues, and I mean look what he's done his last several seasons. Who better than Hassan Reddick for Nolan Smith to be mentored by as well? He already has freakish talent, now it's time to hone it all in and take it to the next level. Now with those two first round picks, that is three first round picks in the last two years at a Georgia defenseman. And don't forget N'Kobe Dean in the third round last year as well, poised to be a starting linebacker this year. Now that wasn't the only Georgia talent the Eagles would go on to add, but before that they would draft Alabama offensive guard Tyler Steen. Now they did announce him as a guard, but he played tackle his entire collegiate career. And immediately after that pick, safety Sidney Brown from Illinois. And yeah, interceptions don't paint the whole picture, um, but Brown did have six interceptions his senior year. And in the previous episode, I went over how Terrell Edmonds seems to be more of a safety that goes well with a safety that can potentially be a ball hawk. I think that the Eagles hope Brown can fight for the starting safety role right out of the gate. On NFL.com, they have him ranked as the number one safety in the athletic score heading into the draft. And now he has to put it all together as some weaknesses I've read about are his below average change of direction and his inability to consistently bring the ball carries down, which there's nothing more frustrating than a defensive player that cannot tackle. So we'll see about that. Now, when Tyler Steen, 
once I heard the stat that he never played the guard position in college, yet he was announced as one, I immediately figured this is a Jeff Stoutland type pick. Someone they obviously see the talent he has at the tackle position, and they believe in Stoutland enough to bring him in and teach him the guard role. This also fills a depth slot and gives, a, and gives us a potential versatile backup that can go back and forth between the guard and tackle position if needed. I'm pretty certain that Steen won't have the pressure of starting this year, besides injuries happening, but with Cam Jurgens most likely slotted into that right guard position. So once again, it just seems the Eagles are shoring up this offensive line. In the early fourth round, with the 105th overall pick of the draft, the Eagles selected yet another Georgia defensive player in Keely Ringo. Make that five Georgia defensive players in the last two years drafted. How we even said they had plans to take Ringo in the third. So yet another draft pick that they patiently waited for, and they fell to them. Ringo is six foot two, weighing in at around 205 pounds. He posted a 4-3-5 40-yard dash at the combine. He was a key part of the back-to-back -back national champion Georgia Bulldogs defense, led the team in passes defended both seasons, was a very sound tackler, would make flashy plays, but would tend to also give up some big plays as well due to not processing the plays quick enough and late reaction time as well. Ringo obviously has some weaknesses. That's why he fell to the fourth round. But with his overall athleticism, competitiveness, and desire to keep getting better, I can see a future with Ringo as, as one of our two starting cornerbacks. And also good for Ringo, he comes into a team with two starting veteran safeties who have years and years of experience and only help him learn and hopefully grow into his potential. Also, the man is only 20 years old, and just once again another insanely highly valued pick if you compare it to a lot of the big mock drafts, having Ringo in the second round and third round. And real quick to go over this Georgia defense thing, I don't think Howie is going into this draft saying, okay, we need every Georgia defensive player we can grab. Um, the truth is that the Georgia defense through these back-to-back -back title runs is just a historic defense in college football history. So obviously they are loaded with talent and a large amount of that defense will make the NFL. These are guys that are all over the Eagles draft boards. If they are available to draft when their pick comes up, why would they pass, an ex pass up on an extremely talented player just because he went to the same school as some of the other draft picks? It just doesn't make sense to me. That would be such a shitty approach in my opinion and just such an easy way to pass up talent. If the talent is there, you fucking draft the guy. Plain and simple. That's it. Now, shortly after that Keely Ringo selection, the Eagles shored up their backfield for the year, trading a 2025 fourth round pick and a 2023 seventh rounder to the Detroit Lions in exchange for a 2023 seventh rounder. And most importantly, the young and explosive running back DeAndre Swift, baby, let's go! Man, I was so pumped. Once again, Howie brings in a player in the final year of his rookie contract hoping for big things. And I think we can definitely expect that out of Swift here in Philly. With this offensive line, and all the eyes will not be on Swift in the backfield because you have Jalen Hurts handling the ball as well. Also, Swift isn't going to be a workhorse either. We have a crowded running back room in DeAndre Swift, Rashad Penny, Kenneth Gainwell, Boston Scott. Every one of them is going to have enough rest and opportunities to show what they are capable of. Now yes, Swift isn't really considered to be one of the elite running backs in the NFL yet, in my opinion. He has missed 10 games throughout his three-year career and has also never rushed for over 617 yards either, which was honestly kind of surprising from me. But no doubt about it, Swift has potential and all the weapons and talent needed to be considered in that elite bunch. Now, I truly think with the talent Swift possesses as a runner, and especially in the ball-catching aspect, he could potentially be an upgrade over Sanders. And yes, I know it's a stretch with Sanders coming off of his career year, but Swift never had the chance to rush behind this line. He never had the chance to have Jalen Hurts as a quarterback. And if you pair Swift and Penny together, I think it's absolutely an upgrade over Miles Sanders. And once again, it all comes down to health as well. But to keep harping on that, on that Georgia topic, 
DeAndre Swift indeed went to the College of Georgia, which just makes this draft and trade even more hilarious, in my opinion, with all these all these former Georgia players now on the Eagles. But even better than Swift going to Georgia, Swift is a Philadelphia native. He attended St. Joseph's Prep for High School, which isn't too far from the team's facilities in Philadelphia, and he actually has been either somewhat in contact with the Eagles or watched by the Eagles since he was a teenager. In an article from Zach Berman at the, at the Athletic, he says that the Eagles coaches and head of security Dom DeSandro would actually check out the games at St. Joe's and how he even met Swift as a teenager. So it's kind of this full circle story with Swift coming back home. Make that two years in a row bringing in a hometown talent in Hassan Reddick and now DeAndre Swift. And another cool side note as well, the wide receiver brought in from the Falcons, Alameda Zacchaeus, was actually teammates with Swift at St. Joe's Prep. So there's a really cool Philly connection there. So after that Ringo pick and the Swift trade, their next selection was in the sixth round of one QB Tanner McKee. Maybe one of the only question marks from the draft, which just shows you how amazing this draft actually was. And the reason he's a question mark is just due to his play style. Um, with Hertz and Mariota and even Ian Book on the team, uh, McKee's kind of an outlier in the way he plays compared to those guys. Usually I would think that the team wants all the same style QBs, so if one QB goes down, they can insert the next one without having to change up the offense that much. So, so I would guess that they have some sort of plan, obviously, in developing him in, into some kind of backup. But I'm not going to harp too much on a sixth round pick. They rounded out the draft with defensive tackle Moro Ojimo, a 21-year-old out of Texas and having the largest wingspan in his defensive tackle class. Moro also moved all along the defensive line throughout his collegiate years. Obviously, with the seventh round pick, they like some of his traits and intangibles, but he's a work in progress. And who knows, maybe he can turn into some kind of backup role. We'll see. But that wraps up the draft coverage. And man, just what an unbelievable draft from our Eagles and Harry Roseman. All around the league, throughout the media, they're all giving the Eagles grades no lower than an A minus I've seen. And they're all saying that they won the draft. And it's, yeah, I guess you could say it obviously is hard to grade a draft until it's several years down the road and you see what these players develop into. But the way you, the way you grade the draft in the present time is more looking at what kind of value was at the board. Um, did you reach for anybody? Did you let players fall to you? And what kind of trades did you make? What kind of assets did you bring in? And I feel like the Eagles pretty much checked every single one of their boxes. They didn't reach for a single player. I mean, in Christ, in most of the draft, I feel like most of the players all fell to them somehow way out of the range where they were expected to go. So it's just insanely high value draft picks. And that's why the grade becomes so high. But I mean, just what an awesome feeling this is hearing all of the national media talking about, man, this Eagles team is so good. This draft was amazing. And like, yeah, it's it's cool hearing it from the local media and everything and from the fans, but I feel like you really don't start to believe it until you really hear it from all the national media. And as of right now, football is just too far away for me. I know the Phillies have a long season to go and the Sixers are in the playoffs, but I'm ready for some football Sundays, baby. This draft has me fired the cup and damn it, I'm ready to go. And now let's dive into our second round, Philadelphia 76ers. Now, at the time of this recording, I'm recording this on Saturday, so the day after the Game 3 loss to the Boston Celtics, which me and my buddy Rick actually went to. Um, so I'm still still pretty uh, still pretty depressed about that. It was, it was a, I don't even know if you can call it a hard-fought game or whatnot. Um, it really hurt losing in that fashion. But let's start at the beginning of the series, and I mean, what a game that Game 1 was. James Harden scoring 45 points. What the hell was that? I mean, it was all throughout the game. When the game was getting too out of hand at times, James was there, James was there to right the ship. When the team needed him the most at the end, 
when they needed that player to score an insanely important basket, when, when it was almost towards the end and it seemed like just another heartbreaking loss, James Harden was there to drill a clutch shot. Without the big man on the floor for game one, James Harden had to be the man, and that's absolutely what he was. The Celtics are too good of a team for James to have 22 points and 12 assists. He needed to take over, and that's what he did. That was an unbelievable performance, and anyone who said that Harden disappears in the playoffs at that time, and they have no faith in him, then, then how the fuck do you explain that performance? I mean, you just can't. James Harden was out of this world and out of his mind. The Sixers snagged game one, 119-115. to Maxi wasn't invisible like he was throughout the Celtics series in the regular season. He may have not had the best shooting night, but for him to score 26 points, knowing his struggles against the Celtics and with them beat out as well, Maxi garnering even more attention, it was extremely crucial in this win. At times he looked off in his shooting, but he never lost confidence. He still drove to the rim and made acrobatic layups. He still took threes and contested twos even when they weren't falling. And enough still fell for him to have such an impact on the floor. There's nothing like a Maxi three or a hard driving layup to fire up this team. Anthony Melton was absurd in the first half, making five threes and keeping the game intact when at times, Celtics, the Celtics would extend the lead to double digits. Melton finishes the leading score off the bench with 17 points. The Sixers won the turnover battle 16-6, scoring 20 points off of those turnovers. None bigger than during the last minute of the game after a great defensive stand, Malcolm Brogdon trying to find Tatum on a pass, but instead it goes right to a wide-open Tyrese Maxey who drives down to take the lead. Later on in that final minute with 8.7 seconds to go, Harden hit a killer three to take the lead. I mean, I went crazy when that, when that basket fell. The next Celtic possession followed in a turnover underneath the rim with Paul Reed recovering the ball while he was basically falling out of bounds. And while he tried to pass, Jason Tatum fouled him, resulting in, a, in two huge free throws from Reed that basically sealed the game, making it a four-point lead. Paul actually made four critical three throws in the final minute that honestly could have swayed the game the other way if he missed a couple. They were huge, and it was nice to see Paul Reed play a huge part in the win as well. Paul finished with 10 points and 13 rebounds, and like always, his presence was truly felt underneath the rim anytime a ball was loose. P.J. Tucker did not have a single shot in 36 minutes, which actually made history. P.J. had the most minutes played without taking a field goal or free throw attempt in a playoff game since 1955. And yeah, that sucked, but truly only one time during the entire game did I find myself complaining about P.J. not taking a shot. His offense was obviously not needed, and his defense was felt down the other end. His box score stats won't show the impact he had throughout the game. Now, Tobias Harris contributed with 18 points. He missed some healthy three-point opportunities in the first half and seemed to even pass up those shots at times too, possibly losing his confidence throughout the game. But he regained his confidence. He didn't make dumb plays and really scored the important baskets throughout the second half. And just honestly, what an unbelievable effort without the big man on the floor to take game one and completely shock the Boston Celtics. And the entire city was riding the high after that game. And then comes Wednesday night. It was, it was honestly an absolute embarrassment, to say the least. Uh, Joel Embiid returns from missing the last game of the Nets series and game one of the Celtics series, and I figured no matter what, Embiid's return was going to be rough. But I guess I didn't think that we would be losing 121-87. to By the beginning of the fourth, Doc Rivers pretty much threw in the towel and took out all the starters and was playing every bench player available. And it sucks to say, but yeah, I was fully supporting that decision, which I think most people would have. The game was obviously over. There was nothing they could do. And Joel was already off the floor to start the fourth anyway. Why not just talk, chalk it up as a loss and get the men some rest? But I mean, truly, what kind of performance was that? It, it looked like a team figured, oh, you know what? We got our MVP back. It's an automatic win. And it was the complete opposite of that. James Harden goes from 45 points, 17 for 30 from the floor, 7 of 14 from three, all the way down to 12 points. 
only making two freaking shots on 14 attempts. Thank God for him going to the free throw line 10 times because there was no chance he was getting into double digits, especially turning in an 0 for 6 night from 3. He was a completely different player out there compared to game 1. His shot was absolutely non-existent and his finishing was atrocious. He didn't turn the ball over, but he also only finished with 4 assists. The, the offense had no rhythm whatsoever. At one point, they were 1 for 13 from 3-point range. They would, they would finish 6 for 30, while Boston was 20 for 51 from 3. Now, as excited as I was to see Joel take the floor again, I was hoping for a little more than a 15-point performance, grabbing only 3 rebounds and a big 0 in the assist column. One great thing about Joe, though, was his 5 blocks all which came in the first half. I mean, it felt like every few possessions, he was swatting another ball away, which truly kept the game kind of close in the beginning. Max only had 13 points, and he really seemed to lack confidence throughout the game as well, passing up shots, and at times seeming to second-guess himself. Hard to believe, but Tobias Harris finished as their leading scorer with 16 points. I actually finally found myself yelling at P.J. Tucker through the TV after just passing up yet another open three at a time when the Sixers were severely close to losing control of the game, which ended up happening. P.J. really only brings one thing to the offensive side of the ball, besides maybe his offensive rebound, and that's his corner threes. He has to take them at every slightly open opportunity because he's bound to make one or two, and maybe once in a while three. The offense needs every single player contributing. But even on the defensive side, there wasn't much to say. I mean, besides those crazy blocks from Embiid and maybe a few and maybe a few good defensive possessions in the first half, they just seemed to go through the motions out there. The Celtics seemed to beat the Sixers to every loose ball that was there. They seemed more hungrier and honestly just a way better team. At times it felt like any shot they were taking was going in, especially in the third when they truly took the game away. Now, when it comes to the offense, I tend to lean more on it being the Sixers' own fault for such an off performance than it actually being the Celtics, who played incredible defense. And I'm not trying to discredit the Celtics on the defensive game because, I mean, look how bad we were. But I really think that for some reason, they couldn't get any, any chemistry or rhythm flowing through that offense, and they just gained no momentum through the game as well. Now, a big discussion going into that game, and even after the game, was should Embiid have played so early? Why didn't we wait until we got home for Game 3, since we already had guaranteed a split in the series, and why not, why not give him extra rest? I, for one, was all for Embiid playing. Um, in my opinion, if your best player is a valid play, you gotta fucking play him. Plain and simple. I mean, how can't you? Yeah, I get the injury concerns, but the man is already injured. Gar guaranteed to not be 100% healthy for the rest of the postseason, and if there was that much of a difference in resting him those extra couple days, I think the team truly would have made that decision to sit him. But no matter what, Embiid's first return to the floor truly screamed a loss to me. He missed two games in around two weeks of play. There was no way he was coming back in, still banged up, and going for 38 points with 15 rebounds. I truly wanted to just get this game out of the way, look forward to Game 3 in Philly with Embiid already having a game to knock the rust off, learn to play with the injury and his brace, and hopefully show off his MVP skills. So I still completely agree with playing him for Game 2. Now, let's get into Game 3. And as I mentioned before, I went to the game with my buddy, and it was, it was an awesome experience, truly. Getting to watch Embiid get awarded his MVP trophy in person, seeing him cry once he brought his son out, it, it's the arena just raining down MVP chants. It truly was an amazing sight to see. I, I still cannot believe I got to experience that. This is something that we've talked about for years and years of Embiid finally winning that MVP. And it felt like these last few years, he got screwed out of the chance of winning it. And for him to finally win it and to be able to be at that game, watching him receive it, and just the atmosphere, it was, 
it, it was really awesome. And during that moment, I, I thought then and there, there's no way they lose this game tonight. And holy fuck was I wrong. I mean, once again, what was that? Seriously. Besides Embiid actually turning in a 30.13 rebound and four block night, the team was still extremely frustrating. James Harden, once again, just really doing nothing to help the team actually win. Like nothing. Yeah, he does enough to maybe keep them hanging around, but nothing to give them that extra boost and actually take over and actually overtake the Celtics lead. Another atrocious shooting night from Harden going three for 14 from the floor, two for seven from three. The only reason he got double digits once again was for his three throws when he went eight for nine. But still, there were so many drives that he couldn't finish and just shots that Harden should usually be making. And they were just so short or completely off target. I mean, yeah, he put together 16 points and 11 assists, but with the caliber player that James Harden can be, I'm sorry, but that's not nearly enough. And actually, I take that back. I'm not fucking sorry. This is a man destined for the Hall of Fame. A man that dropped 40 points in the first game of the series. A man that was supposed to come in here, team up with Embiid, and beat any team in their path to a championship run. A man that has talked about his entire career wanting to get that championship. And with his caliber of talent, you would think that, that that'd be his number one uh, mindset and goal. But when he's out there, it just, it just doesn't seem like it. Once again, just for another season, I have no damn faith. None. I mean, how does this team flip a switch after playing two games in a row like that and turn it around and win the series? From everything I'm seeing, I'd be insane to think they could win. And first of all, there shouldn't even be a switch that they need to flip. We are in the second round of the playoffs, man. What are we doing? And Maxi, I love the kid, but just once again, such an underwhelming performance. 13 points, four for 16 shooting. What the hell is that, man? Boston just locks Maxi down and he cannot figure out a way around them and cannot get into any sort of rhythm. Tobias Harris turned in his worst performance of the playoffs with only seven points. PJ Tucker actually made three threes and for once was actually contributing to the offensive side of the team. Just for it to be another damn loss. At one point in the first quarter, they were down over 10 points, and they somehow closed out that quarter with a 29 to 28 lead. They went into halftime down by seven and found themselves in the third down by 12. And then they would bring it back to within two towards the end of the third, only for it to go back up to double digits. Anytime this team got close to possibly tying it, Boston would just drain a few incredible shots and wipe away all momentum that the Sixers were building up. The fourth quarter was just an absolute heartbreaker with so many times of them bringing it to a, around a five-point deficit, and yet once again, they just wouldn't be able to stop Boston down the other end of the floor. It was, it was so damn frustrating that just when you think that they're back in the game and ready to go on a run and take the lead, Boston would just hit these, these couple shots, and the team would have awful offensive possessions, and they'd be back, back down by double digits, just like that. Just what an absolute disappointment, and I cannot believe the little amount of faith I have in this team to overcome this series deficit and win it. What what have they showed us besides game one? I just don't see how it's possible, and it kills me to say it, but let's see what they can do game four in Philly, hopefully tying it back up and heading back to Boston. And, well, might as well just keep the disappointment going and let's get into our once again struggling Philadelphia Phillies. Ah, I'm so damn confused about this team, truly. At the time of the last recording, the Phillies were on their first three-game win streak of the season. They were one game behind 500, and things were starting to look up. They started off by taking two or three from the Mariners and two or three from the Astros in a, in a little World Series rematch. Nolan Wheeler finally strung together some, some decent and solid outings together, and the bullpen was shutting down 
every inning they came in. I mean, at one point in the second game of the Mariners series, the bullpen was on a 32-inning run of only allowing three runs, which equates to a .84 ERA, walked only four batters, and struck out 40. I mean, absolutely insane numbers from the guys out of the pen. It felt like you had Soto, Kimbrel, Dominguez, and Alvarado come in to finish it off, and it was just almost automatic at that point. They would come in no matter the situation and absolutely shut it down. But then the starters in the bullpen just started to completely fall apart once again. And after winning four series in a row, the Phillies went on to get swept out in Los Angeles by the Dodgers and dropped the first game to the Boston Red Sox at home as well, bringing their losing streak, bringing them to a losing streak of five games, their longest of the season, and an overall record of 15 and 18. Now, during that Dodgers series, Bryce Harper returned only 160 days after receiving his Tommy John surgery, the fastest player to ever do it in baseball history, which is an absolute absurd fact. I mean, the man never ceases to amaze me. And to make it even cooler, Bryce said when he thought about a possible return date um, to hopefully set as a goal, he picked out the Dodgers series, and long behold, I mean, the man made it come true. Now, as excited as I was to get Bryce back and make this lineup even d- deeper, I guess I should have I I been more prepared on how Rob was going to handle this lineup. In Harper's first game back, the lineup looked like this. Leading off Schwarber, then it was Trey Turner, Harper, Castellanos in the cleanup, Bryson Stott, JT Romuto, Alec Boehm, Brandon Marsh, and Sosa in the nine hole. So yeah, right off the bat, holy shit, that lineup is deep. Brandon Marsh is seriously your eight hole hitter with no holes throughout the lineup, and Sosa is an extremely solid nine hole hitter. But I truly cannot get with this whole car Schwarber leading off thing. It doesn't work for me. I understand Rob's argument will be about the amount of pitches Kyle sees and his on-base percentage, but I flat-out disagree. I know there's not really typical leadoff batters anymore in today's age of baseball, and it's all analytically driven, but you probably have two of your highest strikeout rate batters going 1-2. And if there's a game there cold, which feels like a lot of games as of right now, it's two easy outs, whether it's to start the game or later on in the game when you have fresh arms coming out of the bullpen, lighting up the radar gun and strike zone. I truly don't see how it can work. And once again, I can't see Kyle mash 40 home runs and not even get above uh, 100 RBIs. I mean, it's just an absolute waste of power, especially when Kyle comes up and all I'm expecting is a walk, a home run, or a strikeout. That's not a freaking leadoff hitter. I, I, you, you, can't, you can't explain it to me. That's not a leadoff hitter. You had Bryson leading off for a few weeks, and I thought it seemed to be a great fit. I mean, yeah, he may have cooled off since his historic start to the season, but he still seemed confident out there and just, Worked very good at bats, and but his on-base percentage was just slightly above Kyle Schwarber's, and that's where I guess Rob Ar- Rob's argument comes into play. I don't understand why you would just take Stott out and push him right back to the lineup. Now, my lineup would look like this, and it's nothing special because I see a lot of people saying the same thing as well, but I would have Stott leading off with Turner up as the second batter, Harper, Nick Castellanos, Schwarber, JT in the six hole, Boom, Marsh, and then Sosa in the nine hole. I mean, how freaking simple is that? I feel like it's just staring you in the damn face, Rob. Why do you have to get all cute and go crazy into the analytics? Stop complicating things. Leave the lineup the way it is. Let the team gain momentum. There's too much talent for it to not work. You're overthinking it. Why would you not want to have contact and speed at the top of the lineup? Get on base and then the power comes through. Especially with having Harper third and the way Castellanos is batting too. Trying to get those two first men on base with that speed. I mean, you're just guaranteeing yourself runs. Now back to Bryce. He had an 0-4 debut, which I thought that was kind of expected, wasn't worried at all. But in his second game of the season, he looked mid-season form already. 
going three for three with a double and two walks as well. So getting on base safely in all five of his appearances. And yet they still lost the game. Just showing it's not a one-man game. And just because Bryce might be back doesn't mean everything is fixed and it's smooth sailing from here. Oh yeah, and once again in that final game of the Dodgers series, Nola had a 5-0 lead and they lost. I'm not blaming it all on Nola. There were some defensive collapses towards the back half of the game. But when it's 5-0 and your ace in quotation marks is on the mound, I don't care what happens. You shouldn't be losing that freaking game. The Phillies had an off day, then come back home to Philly to open up a series against the Red Sox, which I'll be attending Sunday's game, so I'm pretty excited about that. It also gave the fans a chance to welcome back Bryce Harper to the team and give him a standing ovation. Now, the team actually had to file a formal request to Major League Baseball and asked to give Bryce Harper more time in his first at-bat so he could properly be, so he could be properly welcomed. Otherwise, the umpire would call a pitch clock violation, and Harper would start off with a 0-1 count. Pretty pathetic, in my opinion. I mean, I understand the whole speed in the game up, but you can't let the fans recognize a player that's coming back from an injury. I mean, for what, an extra 10, 15, 20 seconds? Get it together, MLB. I mean, truly. And going into this game, once again, here comes Rob with the lineup decisions. Stott and Marsh not in the lineup. Why? Why? It's These are your everyday players. They just had a day off. I don't want to hear the excuse that you just want to give them a day off. I could understand if you're playing 15 damn days in a row. You're coming off of a day off. I don't give a... I don't give a shit about all these matchups against left-handed pitchers, and they're your everyday players. Fucking play them. And once again, with one of their aces on the mound and Zach Wheeler, they would go on to lose 5-3. Wheeler gave up gave up four earned runs in five and a third inning, five and a third innings, bringing his ERA to 4.26. Right in this five-game losing streak, the Phillies are entering must-win territory before it gets too out of hand, before the players lose all confidence and the fans become disinter- disinterested again. Now, I don't necessarily think that will be the case with the fans because they're still fired up about this team. And I just don't want to see that dwindle down. That's what I'm worried about. These past five games, the starting rotation has put together a stat line of a 9.53 ERA in 22 and two-thirds innings while giving up 36 hits. Pathetic, atrocious, and embarrassing, disgusting. I, I don't even know how else to describe it. And oh yeah, through 33 games, this team scored three or fewer runs for the six time basically half the season and this is a team that is supposedly built on this offensive juggernaut i mean where the hell is it that's it. you know what this that's enough of these phillies for today i i truly just can't do it anymore uh quick note of maybe some good news <laughs> ranger Suarez will be making a minor league rehab start this sunday and it looks like it could potentially be his last and he'll be ready to enter the major league rotation after that which seems to be Strom may have made his last start for a little while and we're entered the bullpen. He's actually slated to skip, they're actually slated to skip his spot in the rotation this week just because of their few off days and they'll keep Nola and Wheeler on the normal amount of rest and uh, give Strom some more rest too because he's already at half the innings I think that he pitched all of last year, which is a little, little worrisome. But uh, we'll see what they can do from here. And so that will about do it for episode five of the Philly Sports Complex. I've reached this, I've recorded this on Saturday, May 6th, before the Philly's second game of this Red Sox series. So Saturday night's game and Sunday's afternoon and Sunday afternoon's game, which I will be attending, will not be covered in this episode. And neither will the Sixers game four against the Celtics as well, which, ah, who even knows how that turns out. But I'm praying both teams can write the ship. The Phillies are in a downward spiral, and it's only looking worse. They're pretty much on the verge of must-win territory. It, they have to get it together. The Sixers are on the verge of losing control of the series, and once again, 
not making it out of the second round. It's a really, really tough time to stay positive in the land of Philly sports right now. Besides the Eagles, I, I truly don't know where to look. I mean, I'll give another congratulations to Joel Hans Embiid for finally winning that MVP trophy. I know the biggest prize is that finals trophy, but for how many years that MVP journey was going on, and so many times he seemed destined for it, but it always came up short, it was really nice to see him finally getting what he deserved. And I can't believe I was actually able there to experience that moment live. Maybe my biggest takeaway from witnessing that Game 3 live was the MVP trophy presentation. So, once again, thank you for tuning in. Um, if you can, just give the podcast a follow, a review if you have a chance, share it if you would like, and maybe give the Twitter page a follow as well. Uh, the Twitter handle is at a Philly complex. Now, y'all enjoy the rest of your weekend. Hopefully the teams can turn it around and we can start the week off in a happy mindset. But is that too much to ask for in the world of Philly sports? After all, it is indeed a Philly sports complex. Anyway, go birds!